When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Law School of America Structure Congress is split into two chambers, House and Senate, and manages the task of writing national legislation by dividing work into separate committees which specialize in different areas. Some members of Congress are elected by their peers to be officers of these committees. Further, Congress has ancillary organizations such as the Government Accountability Office and the Library of Congress to help provide it with information and members of Congress have staff and offices to assist them as well. In addition, a vast industry of lobbyists helps members write legislation on behalf of diverse corporate and labor interests. Committees Specializations The committee structure permits members of Congress to study a particular subject intensely. It is neither expected nor possible that a member be an expert on all subject areas before Congress. As time goes by, Members develop expertise in particular subjects and their legal aspects. Committees investigate specialized subjects and advise the entire Congress about choices and trade-offs. The choice of specialty may be influenced by the member's constituency, important regional issues, prior background and experience. Senators often choose a different specialty from that of the other senator from their state to prevent overlap. Some committees specialize in running the business of other committees and exert a powerful influence over all legislation. For example, the House Ways and Means Committee has considerable influence over House affairs. Power Committees write legislation. While procedures, such as the House discharge petition process, can introduce bills to the House floor and effectively bypass committee input, they are exceedingly difficult to implement without committee action. Committees have power and have been called independent fiefdoms. Legislative, oversight, and internal administrative tasks are divided among about 200 committees and subcommittees which gather information, evaluate alternatives, and identify problems. They propose solutions for consideration by the full chamber. In addition, they perform the function of oversight by monitoring the executive branch and investigating wrongdoing. Officer At the start of each two-year session the House elects a speaker who does not normally preside over debates but serves as the majority party's leader. In the Senate, the vice president is the ex officio president of the Senate. In addition, the Senate elects an officer called the president pro tempore. Pro tempore means for the time being and this office is usually held by the most senior member of the Senate's majority party and customarily keeps this position until there is a change in party control. Accordingly, the Senate does not necessarily elect a new president pro tempore at the beginning of a new Congress. In both the House and Senate, the actual presiding officer is generally a junior member of the majority party who is appointed so that new members become acquainted with the rules of the chamber. Support Services Library of Congress The Library of Congress was established by an act of Congress in 1800. It is primarily housed in three buildings on Capitol Hill, but also includes several other sites, the National Library Service for the Blind and Physically Handicapped in Washington, D.C., the National Audiovisual Conservation Center in Culpeper, Virginia, a large book storage facility located at Fort Meade, Maryland, and multiple overseas offices.
the library had mostly law books when it was burned by a British raiding party during the War of 1812, but the library's collections were restored and expanded when Congress authorized the purchase of Thomas Jefferson's private library. One of the library's missions is to serve the Congress and its staff as well as the American public. It is the largest library in the world with nearly 150 million items including books, films, maps, photographs, music, manuscripts, graphics, and materials in 470 languages. Congressional Research Service The Congressional Research Service, part of the Library of Congress, provides detailed, up-to-date and nonpartisan research for senators, representatives, and their staff to help them carry out their official duties. It provides ideas for legislation, helps members analyze a bill, facilitates public hearings, makes reports, consults on matters such as parliamentary procedure, and helps the two chambers resolve disagreements. It has been called the House's think tank and has a staff of about 900 employees. Congressional Budget Office The Congressional Budget Office or CBO is a federal agency which provides economic data to Congress. It was created as an independent nonpartisan agency by the Congressional Budget and Impoundment Control Act of 1974. It helps Congress estimate revenue and flows from taxes and helps the budgeting process. It makes projections about such matters as the national debt as well as likely costs of legislation. It prepares an annual economic and budget outlook with a mid-year update and writes an analysis of the President's budgetary proposals for the Senate's Appropriations Committee. The Speaker of the House and the Senate's President pro tempore jointly appoint the CBO Director for a four-year term. Lobbyists Lobbyists represent diverse interests and often seek to influence congressional decisions to reflect their clients' needs. Lobby groups and their members sometimes write legislation and whip bills. In 2007, there were approximately 17,000 federal lobbyists in Washington, D.C. They explain to legislators the goals of their organizations. Some lobbyists represent nonprofit organizations and work pro bono for issues in which they are personally interested. United States Capitol Police Partisanship versus Bipartisanship Congress has alternated between periods of constructive cooperation and compromise between parties, known as bipartisanship, and periods of deep political polarization and fierce infighting, known as partisanship. The period after the Civil War was marked by partisanship, as is the case today. It is generally easier for committees to reach accord on issues when compromise is possible. Some political scientists speculate that a prolonged period marked by narrow majorities in both chambers of Congress has intensified partisanship in the last few decades, but that an alternation of control of Congress between Democrats and Republicans may lead to greater flexibility in policies, as well as pragmatism and civility within the institution. Procedures Sessions A term of Congress is divided into two sessions, one for each year. Congress has occasionally been called into an extra or special session. A new session commences on January 3rd each year, unless Congress decides differently. The Constitution requires Congress to meet at least once each year and forbids either House from meeting outside the Capitol without the consent of the other House. Joint Sessions Joint sessions of the United States Congress occur on special occasions that require a concurrent resolution from both House and Senate. These sessions include counting electoral votes after a presidential election and the President's State of the Union address. The constitutionally mandated report, normally given as an annual speech, is modeled on Britain's speech from the throne, was written by most presidents after Jefferson but personally delivered as a spoken oration beginning with Wilson in 1913. 
Joint sessions and joint meetings are traditionally presided over by the Speaker of the House, except when counting presidential electoral votes when the Vice President, acting as the President of the Senate, presides. Bills and Resolutions Ideas for legislation can come from members, lobbyists, state legislatures, constituents, legislative council, or executive agencies. Anyone can write a bill, but only members of Congress may introduce bills. Most bills are not written by Congress members, but originate from the executive branch. Interest groups often draft bills as well. The usual next step is for the proposal to be passed to a committee for review. A proposal is usually in one of these forms. Bills are laws in the making. A House-originated bill begins with the letters HR for House of Representatives, followed by a number kept as it progresses. Joint Resolutions There is little difference between a bill and a joint resolution since both are treated similarly. A joint resolution originating from the House, for example, begins H.J. Rees, followed by its number. Concurrent resolutions affect only both the House and Senate and accordingly are not presented to the President for approval later. In the House, they begin with H. Conrees. Simple resolutions concern only the House or only the Senate and begin with H. Rees or S. Rees. Representatives introduce a bill while the House is in session by placing it in the hopper on the clerk's desk. It is assigned a number and referred to a committee which studies each bill intensely at this stage. Drafting statutes requires great skill, knowledge, and experience and sometimes take a year or more. Sometimes lobbyists write legislation and submit it to a member for introduction. Joint resolutions are the normal way to propose a constitutional amendment or declare war. On the other hand, concurrent resolutions, passed by both houses, and simple resolutions, passed by only one house, do not have the force of law but express the opinion of Congress or regulate procedure. Bills may be introduced by any member of either house. However, the Constitution states, all bills for raising revenue shall originate in the House of Representatives. While the Senate cannot originate revenue in appropriation bills, it has power to amend or reject them. Congress has sought ways to establish appropriate spending levels. Each chamber determines its own internal rules of operation unless specified in the Constitution or prescribed by law. In the House, a Rules Committee guides legislation, in the Senate, a Standing Rules Committee is in charge. Each branch has its own traditions, for example, the Senate relies heavily on the practice of getting unanimous consent for non-controversial matters. House and Senate rules can be complex, sometimes requiring a hundred specific steps before a bill can become a law. Members sometimes turn to outside experts to learn about proper congressional procedures. Each bill goes through several stages in each house including consideration by a committee and advice from the Government Accountability Office. Most legislation is considered by standing committees which have jurisdiction over a particular subject such as agriculture or appropriations. The House has 20 standing committees, the Senate has 16. Standing committees meet at least once each month. Almost all standing committee meetings for transacting business must be open to the public unless the committee votes, publicly, to close the meeting. A committee might call for public hearings on important bills. Each committee is led by a chair who belongs to the majority party and a ranking member of the minority party. Witnesses and experts can present their case for or against a bill. Then, a bill may go to what is called a markup session, where committee members debate the bill's merits and may offer amendments or revisions. Committees may also amend the bill, but the full House holds the power to accept or reject committee amendments. After debate, the committee votes whether it wishes to report the measure to the full House. If a bill is tabled, then it is rejected. If amendments are extensive, 
Sometimes a new bill with amendments built in will be submitted as a so-called clean bill with a new number. Both houses have procedures under which committees can be bypassed or overruled but they are rarely used. Generally, members who have been in Congress longer have greater seniority and therefore greater power. A bill which reaches the floor of the full house can be simple or complex and begins with an enacting formula such as be it enacted by the Senate and House of Representatives of the United States of America in Congress assembled. Consideration of a bill requires, itself, a rule which is a simple resolution specifying the particulars of debate, time limits, possibility of further amendments, and such. Each side has equal time and members can yield to other members who wish to speak. Sometimes opponents seek to recommit a bill which means to change part of it. Generally, discussion requires a quorum, usually half of the total number of representatives, before discussion can begin, although there are exceptions. The House may debate and amend the bill, the precise procedures used by the House and Senate differ. A final vote on the bill follows. Once a bill is approved by one House, it is sent to the other which may pass, reject, or amend it. For the bill to become law, both houses must agree to identical versions of the bill. If the second house amends the bill, then the differences between the two versions must be reconciled in a conference committee, an ad hoc committee that includes both senators and representatives sometimes by using a reconciliation process to limit budget bills. Both houses use a budget enforcement mechanism informally known as pay-as-you-go or pay-go which discourages members from considering acts which increase budget deficits. If both houses agree to the version reported by the conference committee, the bill passes, otherwise it fails. The Constitution specifies that a majority of members, known as a quorum, be present before doing business in each house. However, the rules of each house assume that a quorum is present unless a quorum call demonstrates the contrary and debate often continues despite the lack of a majority. Voting within Congress can take many forms, including systems using lights and bells and electronic voting. Both houses use voice voting to decide most matters in which members shout I or no and the presiding officer announces the result. The Constitution, however, requires a recorded vote if demanded by one-fifth of the members present or when voting to override a presidential veto. If the voice vote is unclear or if the matter is controversial, a recorded vote usually happens. The Senate uses roll-call voting, in which a clerk calls out the names of all the senators, each senator stating I or no when their name is announced. In the Senate, the vice president may cast the tie-breaking vote if present when the senators are equally divided. The House reserves roll-call votes for the most formal matters, as a roll-call of all 435 representatives takes quite some time, normally, members vote by using an electronic device. In the case of a tie, the motion in question fails. Most votes in the House are done electronically, allowing members to vote yea or nay or present or open. Members insert a voting ID card and can change their votes during the last five minutes if they choose. In addition, paper ballots are used on some occasions, yay indicated by green and nay by red. One member cannot cast a proxy vote for another. Congressional votes are recorded on an online database. After passage by both houses, a bill is enrolled and sent to the president for approval. The president may sign it making it law or veto it, perhaps returning it to Congress with the president's objections. A vetoed bill can still become law if each House of Congress votes to override the veto with a two-thirds majority. Finally, the President may do nothing, neither signing nor vetoing the bill, and then the bill becomes law automatically after 10 days, not counting Sundays, according to the Constitution. But if Congress is adjourned during this period, Presidents may veto legislation passed at the end of a Congressional session simply by ignoring it, the maneuver is known as a pocket veto.
and cannot be overridden by the adjourned Congress. Now a word from our sponsor, the Law School of America. Congress and the Public Advantage of Incumbency Citizens and Representatives Senators face re-election every six years, and representatives every two. Re-elections encourage candidates to focus their publicity efforts at their home states or districts. Running for re-election can be a grueling process of distant travel and fundraising which distracts senators and representatives from paying attention to governing, according to some critics. Although others respond that the process is necessary to keep members of Congress in touch with voters. Nevertheless, incumbent members of Congress running for re-election have strong advantages over challengers. They raise more money because donors fund incumbents over challengers, perceiving the former as more likely to win, and donations are vital for winning elections. One critic compared being elected to Congress to receiving life tenure at a university. Another advantage for representatives is the practice of gerrymandering. After each 10-year census, states are allocated representatives based on population, and officials in power can choose how to draw the congressional district boundaries to support candidates from their party. As a result, re-election rates of members of Congress hover around 90 percent, causing some critics to accuse them of being a privileged class. Academics such as Princeton's Stephen Macedo have proposed solutions to fix gerrymandering in the U.S. Both senators and representatives enjoy free mailing privileges, called franking privileges, while these are not intended for electioneering. This rule is often skirted by borderline election-related mailings during campaigns. Expensive Campaigns In 1971, the cost of running for Congress in Utah was $70,000 but costs have climbed. The biggest expense is television advertisements. Today's races cost more than a million dollars for a House seat, and six million or more for a Senate seat. Since fundraising is vital, members of Congress are forced to spend ever-increasing hours raising money for their re-election. Nevertheless, the Supreme Court has treated campaign contributions as a free speech issue. Some see money as a good influence in politics since it enables candidates to communicate with voters. Few members retire from Congress without complaining about how much it costs to campaign for re-election. Critics contend that members of Congress are more likely to attend to the needs of heavy campaign contributors than to ordinary citizens. Elections are influenced by many variables. Some political scientists speculate there is a coattail effect, when a popular president or party position has the effect of re-electing incumbents who win by riding on the president's coattails, although there is some evidence that the coattail effect is irregular and possibly declining since the 1950s. Some districts are so heavily Democratic or Republican that they are called a safe seat, any candidate winning the primary will almost always be elected, and these candidates do not need to spend money on advertising. But some races can be competitive when there is no incumbent. If a seat becomes vacant in an open district, then both parties may spend heavily on advertising in these races. In California in 1992, only four of 20 races for House seats were considered highly competitive. Television and negative advertising. Since members of Congress must advertise heavily on television, this usually involves negative advertising, which smears an opponent's character without focusing on the issues. Negative advertising is seen as effective because the messages tend to stick. However, these advertisements sour the public on the political process in general as most members of Congress seek to avoid blame. One wrong decision or one damaging television image can mean defeat at the next election, which leads to a culture of risk avoidance, a need to make policy decisions behind closed doors, and concentrating publicity efforts in the members' home districts. Public Perceptions of Congress 
prominent founding fathers writing in the Federalist Papers felt that elections were essential to liberty, that a bond between the people and the representatives was particularly essential, and that frequent elections are unquestionably the only policy by which this dependence and sympathy can be effectively secured. In 2009, however, few Americans were familiar with leaders of Congress. The percentage of Americans eligible to vote who did, in fact, vote was 63% in 1960, but has been falling since, although there was a slight upward trend in the 2008 election. Public opinion polls asking people if they approve of the job Congress is doing have, in the last few decades, hovered around 25% with some variation. Scholar Julian Zelliger suggested that the size, messiness, virtues, and vices that make Congress so interesting also create enormous barriers to our understanding of the institution. Unlike the presidency, Congress is difficult to conceptualize. Other scholars suggest that despite the criticism, Congress is a remarkably resilient institution, its place in the political process is not threatened, it is rich in resources and that most members behave ethically. They contend that Congress is easy to dislike and often difficult to defend and this perception is exacerbated because many challengers running for Congress run against Congress, which is an old form of American politics that further undermines Congress's reputation with the public. The rough-and-tumble world of legislating is not orderly and civil, human frailties too often taint its membership, and legislative outcomes are often frustrating and ineffective, still, we are not exaggerating when we say that Congress is essential to American democracy. We would not have survived as a nation without a Congress that represented the diverse interests of our society, conducted a public debate on the major issues, found compromises to resolve conflicts peacefully, and limited the power of our executive, military, and judicial institutions. The popularity of Congress ebbs and flows with the public's confidence in the government generally. The legislative process is easy to dislike. It often generates political posturing and grandstanding. It necessarily involves compromise and it often leaves broken promises in its trail. Also, members of Congress often appear self-serving as they pursue their political careers and represent interests and reflect values that are controversial. Scandals, even when they involve a single member, add to the public's frustration with Congress and have contributed to the institution's low ratings in opinion polls. Smith, Roberts, and Whelan an additional factor that confounds public perceptions of Congress is that congressional issues are becoming more technical and complex and require expertise in subjects such as science, engineering and economics. As a result, Congress often cedes authority to experts at the executive branch. Since 2006, Congress has dropped 10 points in the Gallup confidence poll with only 9% having a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in their legislators. Since 2011, Gallup poll has reported Congress's approval rating among Americans at 10% or below three times. Public opinion of Congress plummeted further to 5% in October 2013 after parts of the U.S. government deemed non-essential government shutdown. Smaller states and bigger states. When the Constitution was ratified in 1787, the ratio of the populations of large states to small states was roughly 12 to 1. The Connecticut Compromise gave every state, large and small, an equal vote in the Senate. Since each state has two senators, residents of smaller states have more clout in the Senate than residents of larger states. But since 1787, the population disparity between large and small states has grown. In 2006, for example, California had 70 times the population of Wyoming. Critics, 
such as constitutional scholar Sanford Levinson, have suggested that the population disparity works against residents of large states and causes a steady redistribution of resources from large states to small states. However, others argue that the Connecticut Compromise was deliberately intended by the Founding Fathers to construct the Senate so that each state had equal footing not based on population, and contend that the result works well on balance. Members and Constituents A major role for members of Congress is providing services to constituents. Constituents request assistance with problems. Providing services helps members of Congress win votes in elections and can make a difference in close races. Congressional staff can help citizens navigate government bureaucracies. One academic described the complex intertwined relation between lawmakers and constituents as home style. Congressional style. One way to categorize lawmakers, according to political scientist Richard Fenno, is by their general motivation. 1. Re-election. These are lawmakers who never met a voter they didn't like and provide excellent constituent services. 2. Good public policy. Legislators who burnish a reputation for policy expertise and leadership. 3. Power in the chamber. Lawmakers who spend serious time along the rail of the House floor or in the Senate cloakroom ministering to the needs of their colleagues. Famous legislator Henry Clay in the mid-19th century was described as an issue entrepreneur who looked for issues to serve his ambitions. Privileges and pay. Privileges protecting members. Members of Congress enjoy parliamentary privilege, including freedom from arrest in all cases except for treason, felony, and breach of the peace, and freedom of speech and debate. This constitutionally derived immunity applies to members during sessions and when traveling to and from sessions. The term arrest has been interpreted broadly, and includes any detention or delay in the course of law enforcement, including court summons and subpoenas. The rules of the House strictly guard this privilege. A member may not waive the privilege on their own, but must seek the permission of the whole House to do so. Senate rules, however, are less strict and permit individual senators to waive the privilege as they choose. The Constitution guarantees absolute freedom of debate in both houses, providing in the speech or debate clause of the Constitution that for any speech or debate in either house, they shall not be questioned in any other place. Accordingly, a member of Congress may not be sued in court for slander because of remarks made in either house, although each house has its own rules restricting offensive speeches and may punish members who transgress. Obstructing the work of Congress is a crime under federal law and is known as contempt of Congress. Each member has the power to cite individuals for contempt but can only issue a contempt citation. The judicial system pursues the matter like a normal criminal case. If convicted in court, an individual found guilty of contempt of Congress may be imprisoned for up to one year. The franking privilege allows members of Congress to send official mail to constituents at government expense. Though they are not permitted to send election materials, borderline material is often sent, especially in the run-up to an election by those in close races. Indeed, some academics consider free mailings as giving incumbents a big advantage over challengers. Pay and Benefits from 1789 to 1815, members of Congress received only a daily payment of $6 while in session. Members received an annual salary of $1,500 per year from 1815 to 1817, then a per diem salary of $8 from 1818 to 1855. Since then they have received an annual salary, first begged in 1855 at $3,000. In 1907, salaries were raised to $7,500 per year the equivalent of $173,000 in 2010. In 2006, 
members of Congress received a yearly salary of $165,200. Congressional leaders were paid $183,500 per year. The Speaker of the House of Representatives earns $212,100 annually. The salary of the President pro tempore for 2006 was $183,500, equal to that of the majority and minority leaders of the House and Senate. Privileges include having an office and paid staff. In 2008, non-officer members of Congress earn $169,300 annually. Some critics complain congressional pay is high compared with a median American income of $45,113 for men and $35,102 for women. Others have countered that congressional pay is consistent with other branches of government. Another criticism is that members of Congress have access to free or low-cost medical care in the Washington, D.C., area. The petition, Remove Health Care Subsidies for Members of Congress and Their Families, garnered over 1,077,000 signatures on the website change.org. In January 2014, it was reported that for the first time over half of the members of Congress were millionaires. Congress has been criticized for trying to conceal pay raises by slipping them into a large bill at the last minute. Others have criticized the wealth of members of Congress. Representative Jim Cooper of Tennessee told Harvard professor Lawrence Lessig that a chief problem with Congress was that members focused on lucrative careers as lobbyists after serving that Congress was a farm league for K Street instead of on public service. Members elected since 1984 are covered by the Federal Employees Retirement System, FERS. Like other federal employees, congressional retirement is funded through taxes and participants' contributions. Members of Congress under FERS contribute 1.3% of their salary into the FERS retirement plan and pay 6.2% of their salary in Social Security taxes. And like federal employees, members contribute one-third of the cost of health insurance with the government covering the other two-thirds. The size of a congressional pension depends on the years of service and the average of the highest three years of their salary. By law, the starting amount of a member's retirement annuity may not exceed 80% of their final salary. In 2006, the average annual pension for retired senators and representatives under the Civil Service Retirement System, CSRS, was $60,972, while those who retired under FERS, or in combination with CSRS, was $35,952. Members of Congress make fact-finding missions to learn about other countries and stay informed, but these outings can cause controversy if the trip is deemed excessive or unconnected with the task of governing. For example, the Wall Street Journal reported in 2009 that lawmaker trips abroad at taxpayer expense had included spas, $300 per night extra unused rooms, and shopping excursions. Lawmakers respond that traveling with spouses compensates for being away from them a lot in Washington and justify the trips as a way to meet officials in other nations. The Law School of America This has been a Creative Commons licensed podcast. The content used in the podcast is licensed by the Wikimedia Foundation Incorporated under a Creative Commons Attribution, Share Alike License. The text has been modified for audio. The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. These podcasts are not associated with the Wikimedia Foundation in any context. The Law School of America. Mm-hmm.